So their trait is their happiness and their joy and they get overexcited, they laugh a lot, they are absolute giggle bags. When they're little, they actually light up a room with their joy. They are like little energy bubbles. That's Ursula Crystal, and the little energy bubbles she's referring to are people with Angelman syndrome. Angelman syndrome is a rare disorder and it occurs in about 1 in 15,000 approximately. It's Rare Disorder Month. Kia ora, I'm Davina Zimmer and today on The Detail, that's what we're looking at. Actually, it's not that rare to have a rare disorder. Around 300,000 New Zealanders, or 1 in 17 of us, have one. Obviously, not the same one. There are over 7,000 rare disorders that we know of right now, and that number is rising all the time. Yeah, so in New Zealand, a rare disorder is uh, one where the prevalence is um, 2,500 people having that um, disorder or fewer. That's Chris Higgins, Chief Executive of Rare Disorders New Zealand. We'll get all the facts and figures from him later, but first I'm heading to Walkworth in the far north of Auckland to meet Ursula, whose son's diagnosis with Angelman's saw her embark on a very steep learning curve. I'm the mother of a 28-year-old son who has Angelman syndrome and because of that I've been involved in the disability sector in New Zealand for the last 28 years basically and it's been um, quite an intense journey and obviously it's the story of my life. Um, Angelman syndrome is a rare disorder and it occurs in about 1 in 15,000 approximately and it's a dysfunction on the 15th chromosome and basically it knocks out one gene, the UBE3A gene, um, that has a rather important role, obviously, because um, the symptoms of the syndrome are pretty severe. There is a spectrum of symptoms, so depending on um, how that chromosome has been knocked out, you can have uh, very severe symptoms with severe seizures, you could be in a wheelchair, you might never learn to walk. Um, most people with Angelman syndrome don't learn to, can't speak, so the non-verbal aspect is really uh, quite a biggie. Um, they have a sleep disorder, which is also huge. They have um, gastro issues, which can be pretty intense as well. So there's lots of in and outs in hospitals with different specialists and in the beginning it can be misdiagnosed as well because it is rare and the symptoms mimic other disorders like cerebral palsy or autism. So yeah, it's the rarity that makes it more complex for families dealing with it. And when did you know that something wasn't quite right with your son? Well, I was pretty fortunate in the sense that I had, it was my second child. So I already had a five-year-old son and so I had the experience of childbirth. I knew how things go for normal kids as they develop. You know, he hit all his milestones actually quite early. And um, by the time I had my second son, it then I knew things don't look aren't looking remotely the same. And we are all dark-haired in our family, and he had very fair hair and bright blue eyes and a very pale skin. So immediately everything looked slightly different, and it was not achieved the milestones at the right pace that, um, yeah, those were the little alarm bells that were ringing. Um, so I was breastfeeding and that took hours and hours and hours and no sooner had he finished and then he'd be regurgitating it all up again and then I'd have to start again. It was absolutely exhausting. So those sort of sweet feeding issues are sort of the first sign that um, sh 
shows something's not right. And obviously because they're not feeding, they're not absorbing, they're not on the proper weight scale or they're just below. Whoever's following that will call them sort of a failure to thrive baby. So already the red flags start going up in infancy unless you go and you say, look, something's not right, which is what I did. Um, the, otherwise, nothing really happens until it's really obvious when they start kindy. I'm actually a teacher and teachers are quite pushy and we do our own research. Um, so I, I noticed that my son wasn't sitting properly. It was just obvious I could see something's not quite right. And I mentioned this to the GP one day when my son had a cold and we went in. I said, what do you think? Does he look like he should be sitting better at this stage? And fortunately, my GP instantly, because he knew me, he said, um, you know what, uh, the mother's usually always right. If you think there's something wrong, let's have it checked out. He got onto it straight away and referred me us to a specialist. So um, we ended up with a pediatrician who did an EEG and, you know, checked all the brain waves and stuff. And came, they came back then saying, no, there is something here. And I mean, it does take a while, months and months till all, all that comes back. But they did get us into the system and the, the early intervention therapists would come to our home and we would be getting physio and speech language therapy, which involves the swallowing and the eating at that point. And those therapists, they were quite experienced and they were probably the first people that explained to me in a very caring way that this is probably quite a long-term thing. And they sort of prepared me for the fact that I had a child with a severe disability and he wasn't going to catch up. The actual diagnosis came through the speech-language therapist. So she was the one that sort of recognized his mannerisms, basically. The fact that he waves his hands, that he's always happy, that he laughs a lot. Um, and she, for some reason, noted that he had small gaps between his teeth and that his facial features looked like um, Angelman children. So she said, I wonder if it's Angelman syndrome. Check that with your pediatric neurologist. And thank goodness that the diagnosis came just before he turned two which is when seizures kick in, usually. When you finally got that diagnosis, like, I mean, you realise that your son is never going to be able to be independent. How did that feel for you? Um, I, I know it does affect lots of mothers. Um, with me, I had actually had, um, I was pregnant, actually, and I had a second child 11 months 13 months, sorry, 13 months after my son with Angelman syndrome. So I actually was dealing with a twin scenario at that wow. point. And I think I was just so busy being a mother. To me, it was almost like a relief. I now had something in my toolbox that I, I knew how I could handle it. I just had to research it. Everything was step by step. And I just knew I had to educate myself and become an expert in whatever it was. I didn't really look that far ahead because I had three boys to bring up. Um, the oldest was six at the time, and then the two younger ones were close together. So it didn't really hit me with a sledgehammer. What has it been like navigating the health system? In the beginning, when you're with the early intervention group, that is probably really, really good um, because that gets put into place straight away and you get into the system and therapists visit you and then the child goes to kindy and you get a little bit of support there. And this, of course, only if you've got a proper diagnosis do you get 
as much support as you can at the time, which is why early diagnosis is really, really important. Because they are in kindy or school, you've got the additional insights of therapists and teachers and teacher aides who can also comment on things that they've noticed. So the therapist would refer you and you'd end up going to see a specialist in the hospital service when necessary. And that was quite a good system, but you've got to be on top of everything all the time. You basically never get a break from any of that. So, um, And then as they get older, that's the scary part. A lot of people panic because once they hit 16, they get handed over to the adult services in the public system, which basically means no access to any therapists. At all. Once they leave school uh, or once they leave the schooling system, which you are allowed to stay in until 21, um, then you're basically left to fend for yourself and you just do everything through the GP who then has to refer you to specialists. So they wait. If something comes up, then it gets explored. It's pretty common for people with rare disorders to become their own experts in their condition and navigating their way through the health system is a challenge individuals or their carers are left to manage on their own. I'm networked very well globally as well. So thank goodness when Facebook came along, we could set up seizure groups for Angelman, um, for parents looking after someone with Angelman syndrome. We could share our notes, our thoughts, our specialist information, and we could swap notes and feed it back to our specialists here. And in that way, we got quite, um, yeah, that was really important back then um, in sharing the global knowledge because it's such a rare disorder. It's a life of juggling appointments with a variety of specialists to treat the various symptoms and complications caused by the condition. It's incredibly challenging, and Ursula says the lack of communication between doctors doesn't help. It was chaotic in the sense that uh, you sometimes you're in this, depending on whichever symptoms are hitting you at the time. It could be an episode of seizures, and then you've got to balance seizure medications. So then you're in and out trying to change medications, learn as much as you can. Then we had a whole episode of gastrointestinal issues, and um, that took forever to try and work out because I knew he was in pain for years, and I nobody I had to go to private specialists, which were even less informed. It was really tough to go and actually book an appointment with private specialists. I did one for an orthopedic issue and I did one for a gastro issue. And both those specialists actually ended up taking all my information on board and not being able to help at all. In fact, the one specialist didn't even charge me for the hour-long appointment because I was telling him all about Angelman syndrome and there was nothing he could do. He, he specialised in sporting ortho issues. So that's the difficulty about you realise, wow, we really are on our own with this. The system isn't really helping us and in the end you've got to rely on your own resources and go net globally, get information from overseas and then feed it back here and get find a specialist who will get on board with what you're telling them and then start treating for that. I would have to say for a country that's only got a population of 5 million, it's an appalling 
mess, to be honest. The fact that everything is so, so disconnected. So like I say, with, with my son, it's very specific to him. Not every person with Angelman syndrome might have severe seizures, or there might be some with very severe seizures, and then they live in the neurology departments. Um, whereas my son had a little bit of everything, so we were, I was sort of flitting between all sorts of specialists. There was never a person coordinating any of that care. So it's kind of daunting to think that in New Zealand, we don't have a central space where there is expertise in rare disorders. And why don't we? It makes so much sense to have something like that. Ursula's idea may someday become a reality. In 2022, then Health Minister Andrew Little announced the government was committing to developing a rare disorder strategy. One key part of this is a centre of expertise, a one-stop shop for all things rare. Let's bring back Chris Higgins. We see it as being a a virtual centre, so we're not um, advocating that we build a whole new building or facility, but it's a way of bringing people in New Zealand who have expertise in diagnosing and treating people with rare disorders um, together um, and connecting them, them up. So what it does is it provides a source of um, referral, again, for GPs, but other clinicians who are puzzled by um, what they're seeing uh, and will enable those people to get on a a more uh, rapid and more uh, accurate diagnostic pathway. Uh, Once they've got the diagnosis, then it's getting them uh, hooked into those um, uh, evidence-based standards of care and being able to um, link up with international networks to understand what best practice um, looks like uh, internationally. And then the other uh, plank of the the centre is introducing the idea of a um, a service coordination um, facility. And the reason we've done that is if, if you've got a rare disorder or your child has got a rare disorder, it can be extraordinarily difficult to navigate your way around the health system uh, and keep up with all your appointments and know who you should be seeing and, and all of those sorts of things. Very, very challenging and time-consuming. And what we know is on the few occasions that people have had in New Zealand have had access to a service um, coordinator who can help with all of those things, it makes it's life-changing for, for people. So that, they're the three planks of that centre of um, expertise. Every couple of years, Rare Disorders NZ releases a survey which looks at the impact of living with a rare condition in Aotearoa. This year, they received submissions from over 1,000 people who live with or care for someone with an uncommon condition. We did do a similar survey in 2021, and we did an- another similar survey in um, 2019, and the results across all three surveys are very similar. So we continue to have people who go on what we call a diagnostic odyssey, um, which means they go from test to test, from clinician to clinician, uh, trying to find out what's actually wrong with them. And then the second thing that continues to be a problem is even uh, when you get a diagnosis, but it's even worse if you haven't got the diagnosis, is getting access to appropriate um, treatment. Over one in four patients with a rare disorder have their referral to a specialist declined. Can you tell me a little bit more about that? Yeah, that will often happen because it's just it has to do with the the, the lack of uh, clinical knowledge around particular rare disorders that are in in the um, in the system. We're getting people saying, "Well, it took me ten years uh, before I finally got to the bottom of what the um, what the problem is." An interesting 
quote from someone who did the survey was, the meds are equivalent to using a hammer when a screwdriver is needed. Um, And they were basically referring to, you know, the most common medications that are available for people with rare disorders are to treat, you know, symptoms that and conditions that come as a result of the rare disorder. So things like pain and inflammation and don't actually directly target the problem. Um, yeah, the, the medications that are available for most people most of the time are generally not all that expensive per per person and they are all that's available in the country. If you want a specific um, medication that's going to get to the root cause of a specific uh, rare disorder, then that, those medications can be very expensive. And um, Pharmac, if it does fund them, looks pretty closely at that. There are two schemes that can be used as possible pathways to funding, the NPPA process and the options for investment list. We have in, in New Zealand uh, this um, uh, process, it's called the NPPA process, Name Patient Pharmaceutical Uh, access scheme. So if you are the only person um, who has a particular condition and there is a drug somewhere in the world that can treat it, you can have your circumstances, and they're called exceptional circumstances, you can have your circumstances assessed. Mm. And so what is an exceptional circumstance? I mean, what? how can you define that? For rare disorders, it's somebody who's got a, a particularly rare disorder and that there are very few, if if any, uh, other people um, in the country with that uh, rare disorder, uh, and they will stand to significantly benefit from um, the drug that's out there. And what often happens is that once you get onto that um, options for investment list, it sounds positive on on the one hand, um, but you can be on you know your condition can be on that. Um, and the pharmaceutical you need can be on that list for a long, long time before you get. Um, access to it, if at all. Almost one in three people with a rare disorder have to pay privately to get the medication they need. It's another bill to add to the pile. More than half of the survey respondents said the costs are hard to manage and funding options are limited. For a lot of people with rare disorders, it's the same level of funding support that um, everybody else gets in terms of having access to their um, uh, GP and sometimes having that uh, subsidised and then uh, being seen by you know, publicly funded um, uh, hospital services and, and specialists. If you don't have a, a, a definitive diagnosis, then it's really, it's really hard to get that disability support that you need. So I looked at, you know, the disability allowance. That's $75.10 maximum. That's not an awful lot, is it? No, it's not. No. Um, and, yeah, people with rare disorders, are they're, they're similar to other people with disabilities. If they can even get that, that amount of money in the first place, um, they will really struggle to make ends meet with that resource. This year's survey said many people living with a rare disorder remain largely invisible, despite being a significant part of the population. They're often put in the too-hard basket. Right now, the rare disorder strategy is sitting on the current health minister's desk. Chris is keen for it to get the tick of approval, so Rare Disorders NZ, together with other key agencies, can get the ball rolling on improving the system.
One of the planks that we have been advocating for the rare disorder strategy is that rare disorders in New Zealand gets um, taken on as a, a true partner in the next process of identifying what services are, are needed as we move forward rather than other parts of the health system thinking that they know best and, and can do it without our input. And so what we'll be trying to do is identify some what, what we call kind of quick wins. One of them could be much more clarity uh, around the, those two uh, access schemes, the um, NPPA and the um, options for investment. That's one. That doesn't seem that difficult to do. And uh, the other one is agreeing to have a, a medicine strategy. That doesn't seem that difficult to do. So there's just a couple of examples off the top of my head. It shouldn't be this complicated. I don't understand why our um, bureaucracy is such a mess. It should be straightforward and simple, but it's almost like nobody takes the leadership to make it simple and effective and financially effective. Because if you did make it financially effective, you'd actually solve so many difficulties that families face. Just just make one centralised centre of excellence with all the data that we need for our very small country and we can actually make this all work so much better. If you are interested in learning more about rare disorders, head over to Rare Disorder NZ's website. The detail is supported by NZ On Air and RNZ. This episode was engineered by William Saunders and produced by Alexia Russell. Thanks to Chris Higgins and Ursula Crystal. I'm Davina Zimmer. Ka kite anō.